Howdy y'all. I know it's been way too long between episodes and I'm committed to not letting that happen again. But back with a vengeance with this episode featuring Dr. Ted Metatol from Athens, Texas. And he has such an interesting and inspirational story about what he has done in the past and what he is currently doing in Athens, in Henderson County, and all over the world, actually. He is the founder of Hope Springs Water, and it's just a great story about dedication, purpose, being willing, using the talents that you have to (laughs) just help people. And he points out so many times in this episode about just people that he's helped through, again, being a physician, having people come up to him and tell him stories about what he did for them in the past or their family. And now he's doing that again, like I said, all over the world. So I hope you will enjoy the episode. And even more importantly, I hope you will look up and seek out Hope Springs Water. Check out their website and find ways that you can either help or contribute to a great ministry and a great cause. If you like the episode and you want to hear more things like it, please like, share, and subscribe on your favorite podcast uh, platform. I'd really appreciate it. Here we go with Ted. I've been back up to the hospital, you know, go down on the floor or wherever in surgery or whatever. I don't know anybody, and they don't know me. Sir, can I help you? Yes. So if I went to a fire, if I went to the fire station that I was at the last 16 years of my career, odds are that whoever comes to the door, they'll be saying, "You want your blood pressure check?" Or what, you know, you somebody you your blood sugar check. What's and going maybe on? somebody that's been around a while will come around the corner. Oh, hey. But, yeah, I yes. saw a couple of the old timer nurses, and they were both told me they were quitting. They were leaving, going, doing something else. And you know, I tell you, there was a lot of burnout with COVID. Mm-hmm. Big time. I imagine so. Burnout with COVID. I mean, they just got themselves worked to death. Mm-hmm. And plus seeing people that come in looking pretty decent and then just, you know, in a matter of days, they just roll over and die. And there's right. nothing you can do about it. And you're just like, that'd work on you. That kind of sure. work on your ment- mental mentality, like a, your emotions. Or, from what I heard, you know, almost like a wartime yeah. assignment. PTSD was is has been a big problem in nurses that had to deal with all that during COVID. I mean, tons of them have just stopped being nurses. I mean, they just quit. They said, "I got to go do something else." I can't Melissa's do this. Uh, got a, a gal that she used to work with at Sundown. Her daughter was a nurse and made a lot of money, and we're gonna work. Was good at it, and you know, worked for a long time. And she's cleaning houses now, and she said no. she loves it. <laughs> no, well, it's it's stress free. Yeah. You know, when you're a nurse and you're the you're the person there, and you got a patient dying, and nobody knows what to do, and that's stressful. It is. I can't imagine. I mean, I, I'm kind of glad I wasn't involved in all that. <laughs> <laughs> I was involved at the at the street level. I mean, I was taking seeing patients in the. Right, but you done the same thing, you know, as being a medic or a first responder. Okay, you, uh, you push them in, and you, you pass them on out to the next one. You got COVID. You've got pneumonia, and I knew they were going to die when I told them. I didn't tell them they were going to die, but I said, you're really sick, and you've got big problems, and you've got to get to the hospital now. Yeah. And, and, of course, then you go, they go over to the emergency room of the hospital, and they got no place to put them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it was it was awful. Yeah. It was it was the worst time I can remember. Of course, Doug and I had both retired about, 
what, four months or so before all that hit. Mm-hmm. And we weren't really doing anything in medicine. And then we just looked at each other and said, man, we can't stand over here on the sidelines right. in the yep. worst health d- disaster in, in our careers. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, in the last nearly 100 years, is happening right now. Right. We got to get in the game, man. So we did. How'd y'all do that? Well, we started that East Texas Community Clinic. It was a, a, a federally qualified health clinic. It's still not federally funded yet, but we've been at, at it now for whatever. What is this? Our fourth year that we're working on. Okay. We've been doing this. Of course, we did it for the first year. We, we're doing it basically without pay. P and I are. We have pay the most of the other doctors, but we've got a, a family practice residency program in it with twelve residents and. Okay. Got, got some teachers in there and got uh, got several doctors, got a pediatrician working for us. And we're, If we ever get our federal funding and they keep telling us, any day, any day, because they've been telling us that now for two years, <laughs> if we ever get that done, get the funding, get the funding like we want, then we'll be able to, t- we want to start a psychiatric, bring some psychologists and psychiatrists in that we can pay with federal dollars. You have to get grants, have to fight, you know, apply for grants and that sort of thing to get all that done, but it works out pretty good. You know, it's really kept me busy. Uh, I mean, it got a lot real busy in the last year because we had trouble keeping practitioners. We had trouble keeping doctors and nurse practitioners and PAs working and seeing patients. Because, you know, the, the function, the purpose of a federally qualified health clinic is to is to take care of those people that kind of fall in the cracks. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll see anybody. I mean, as a, federally, as a federal program, anybody walks through our doors, we see them. Whether they can pay, whether they can't pay, whether they got insurance, whether they don't have insurance, we see them. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was designed to take care of those people who are uninsured or underinsured and weren't able to get access to care. And so, and, that, and we've done that. And we still see Medicare, Medicaid, and some insurance. But uh, a lot of the insurance plans that are out there now are just terrible. I mean, they pay less than what Medicaid pays, and Medicaid rates are still based on, like, 1987, you know, fees. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, it's it's awful. You can't pay your expenses with Medicaid rates. But anyway, it's all good, and, and, and it's getting better. As soon as we what, – what will happen is, is once we become – a federally qualified health clinic, and we've, we've passed all the stuff. We've jumped through all their hoops. We filled out their 760-page forms and all this kind of stuff a couple, two or three times, and, and we've had the people come in and walk through and examine us and, and ask all kinds of stupid questions, and, and we've done all that, and they tell us that we pass everything, and we're all good. You know what's been holding us up for the last six months? Please tell me. I'm sure it's something monumental. It's typical. Typical federal government crap. The clinic that we're in right now is in Gun Barrel City. Well, the zip code for Gun Barrel City is the same as Maybank. Maybank. So, on one of the application forms, somebody put in Maybank, and on the other one, somebody put in Gun Barrel City. And we've been screwing with that for six months. Same zip code, same address, same building, same everything, except, well, you've got Maybank here. you got Gun Barrel City here. But it's the same place. <laughs> it's Texas. <laughs> it's Cedar Creek Lake. Oh, my gosh. You can't imagine how much confusion that's caused those people. I can't imagine. Yes. How could that happen? How, right. how could that be? You're telling me there are two <laughs> towns with the same zip code? Same zip code. And an address from one town is the same place as an address from the other town? <laughs> is that what you're telling me? <laughs> You can't fool me. <laughs> you're probably, There's something sketchy going you're on. You're trying to pull one over on us, aren't you? Yeah, I'm telling you, yeah, it's great. So in case I haven't introduced him, which I haven't yet, I'm 
sitting at worldwide headquarters of Hope Springs Water with Dr. C. Ted Metatals. What is it about the, the professions that you go by the first initial, the middle name, and the last name? My mother did that. Okay, C. Ted. See, my first name's Charles, and Charles was my grandfather on my dad's side. My my father's father was okay. Charles. His actual name was Charlie, and uh, that was his legal well, name. On his birth certificate, Charlie. On his birth certificate, was Charlie, and no middle name, just Charlie Metatol. Okay. And he was a, a uh, worked in a sawmill his whole life. Where at? Benton, Arkansas. Ted was my mother's brother. And, of course, I spent most of my time with my mother, so who do you think I was called? Oh, I was called Ted. And so the only time I've ever been called Charles is when I was in the military. And, okay. And Charles? Charles or Chuck. Oh, when you were in trouble? Yeah. <laughs> or, no, actually, I was I was Ted. In fact, I had a, okay. we had a friend, he, his, they called me Teddy the Rooster. Oh. There was some there was some Russian diplomat or something. His name was Ted Ruski. Oh, okay. And so this, this guy decided I was Teddy the Rooster. I was, I was fairly young, man. 26, 27. <laughs> so, tell me your dad's name. Julian Wayne Metatol. What? Julian Wayne Metatol. Julian. And I, you know, I, I think I may have told you that before. I never remember that. You, you very well may have. But yeah. my name is Paul Wayne. No Julian. way. Yes. For real. Paul Wayne. I'll be darned. Paul yep. Wayne or PW or Paul Wayne. My, my dad's Julian Wayne Metatol. My older brother is Julian Wayne Metatol Jr. I'm not sure where the Julian came. Well, I'll tell you. My ancestors, my, my great, my great grandfather came over from France, from southern France with a group of Germans okay. on a boat when he was like 16 or 17, all by himself. No other family. Yeah. Got on this boat, came over to the United States. Settled in central Arkansas with these Germans, and the Germans were doing meat packing, the Finkbeiners and stuff like that. They were packing meats and, and raising you know animals to, mm-hmm. to, to do meat packing stuff, make franks and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And he got he, he my grandfather, my great, he had these kids, and him and two or three of his kids all died with tuberculosis, and so did his wife back up in there in central Arkansas. Wow. They were fairly young, mm-hmm. and my grandfather grew up and, and worked in the sawmill his whole life. He probably was positive for TB. He just didn't get real <laughs> sick with it. it right. TB killed a lot of people back then. It was a nasty disease. It was a nasty disease. A lot of things killed a lot of people back in the day. Yeah. And what about your mother's side? My great, I think she'd be my great-great-grandmother, was a full-blooded Cherokee Indian. She was on the Trail of Tears walk from the from over on the East Coast and came all the way across and then up in the Oklahoma Territory and up in there back in those days. And then she, she met a, a guy from, uh, I think, Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. He was from Ireland, and, and they got married. And, and my grandmother was a product of that marriage. And my grandmother looked like a full-blooded Indian. Really? I mean, she had the hawk nose and the beady black eyes mm-hmm. and the black hair and the whole nine yards. And then my mother had blue eyes. <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, it was interesting. Suppose in my family history, I think there's some <clears throat> Irish, English, Welsh. That apparently, they weren't well thought of uh, coming no. over from from Ireland. Yeah, to the well, states. They, yeah, they they caught a lot, got a lot of discrimination. Uh, the Irish people did. Uh, they for and who knows why? I mean, why do people? Why are people prejudiced? I don't, you know, it's just it's something that gets in your head, right. or something somebody tells you. Yeah. I guess you know back in the when. It wasn't common to be exposed to 
people of many different you know, yeah, walks of life different. or races or nationalities or whatever you call it. That, I mean, it's I think that's a good different. observation. They're just and different. Then you can make, and anything that's different is suspect. It's dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it can be. It or can you, be. That's your first. That's your first thing. Your thing. first thought. Your first inkling is, oh, they could be dangerous. They're, they're different from me. Right. Through 10,000 generations, that was probably the case. I mean, that was what kept people alive was being wary of people yeah. that were yeah. unknown and different. Sometimes I think we take we carry it to an extreme. Right. <laughs> You're in not Bentonville, Arkansas. Benton. Benton. It's, it's oh, 25 or 30 miles from Little Rock. Okay. Sort of south and west of Little Rock. Okay. Uh, it's, it's actually, Benton is right next door to Bauxite. You ever heard of Bauxite, Arkansas? The only functional aluminum mine in the in the north america really is in bauxite arkansas and bauxite is the is the the uh, ore that they okay. that they extract the, the aluminum name the town from. after that makes sense yeah. the alcoa and reynolds aluminum both have got major mm-hmm. presence in bauxite arkansas right. little old dinky town of nothing so what'd you do when you were growing up my dad was a teacher well, actually, he started off as the manager of a bookstore at a small college in, in Monticello, Arkansas. And uh, then he went back to school when we were, when I was probably nine or ten years old. He went back to school and at, at Ole Miss, and he got his master's degree in business administration. And then started teaching at this small school. It was Arkansas A&M College forever and ever. And so I grew up there, and I you know, worked in the tomato fields and, and worked in the rice fields and that sort of thing in southeast Arkansas growing up as a kid. And and you know, played all the sports and played football, but because you know, in a small school, you know, we you got to do it all. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't have enough kids on our football team to even scrimmage. You know, we, I think we had eighteen or nineteen kids on our football team, and so, and we weren't smart enough to play six, six man football. <laughs> so we played eleven man football just because we could. You know? Oh, by golly! But we were all a bunch of farm boys, and so we we were pretty tough. Yeah, we could. We could, we could usually beat the other team to the other end of fourth quarter when we were changing <laughs> ends, you know. <laughs> right. You had to stay in power. That's right. I mean, what do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, what did you, you think know, about then? It, you know, it's interesting, but for most of my life growing up, I loved to swim. I loved the water. I was on swim team. They had and a swim team? Yeah, we had a swim In Arkansas? Team. Yeah. Like in an outdoor pond? Uh, well, it was, <laughs> we actually had a city pool now, and I... Cut that right. out. But, a lot of, people, I was a lot actually, of places, a lot of small towns back at, I mean, Athens used to have a city pool. Yeah. They can't get When one. I first came to town, they had a city pool. Yeah. And they filled it in and have not gone back to revisit that at all. And I think it's a liability issue anymore. I guess. As much as anything. But, you know, when I was a kid, we had a city pool and, and a swim team and we taught swim lessons and uh-huh. water safety and, you know, all that kind of life-saving and, and all that kind of stuff. I was, in fact, I... I took my life saving there, and I was a lifeguard at the pool. Became the swim team coach when I was in college. I coached Man. the swim team. No, it was it was great. It was a great place to grow up. I think the population of the town was about thirty five hundred, and uh, maybe maybe thirty five hundred. In the little college that was out there, it's kind of you know there was. I think they made them may have had two thousand kids in that school or something, maybe on a good day. That's a lot for a thirty five hundred. Yeah. Yeah, population town. Yeah. But it was a it was a school that had a really great music program. So a lot of people and they had a good education program. And the thing that was the real draw was they had a fantastic forestry program. 
And I mean, there were kids that came from all over the country to be a part of that forestry program they had there. And they and they would go to these these national conclaves, this little dinky school in southeast Arkansas, go to these national conclaves and they'd compete against Georgia and Alabama and Mm -hmm. University of Arkansas and beat them, (laughs) beat them every time. And and all those competitions that they did. And finally, the University of Arkansas, about the my last year, well, the year I left and went to medical school, University of Arkansas. Decided they needed that forestry program. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bought them out. <laughs> so they just took them over. Oh, okay. Yeah, they said, okay, you're now the University of Arkansas at Monticello, Arkansas, which was fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it helped the school. Yeah. It got them some more funding, got them some more, you know, got them a, a little better respect and position. Mm-hmm. Plus, they could they could beat Georgia and Alabama, and nobody got upset anymore. <laughs> right, I guess. It's all the optics. That's right. So when did you decide to go to medical school? Was it like a, a given? Was it like, I want to be a doctor when I grow up? No, actually, I always wanted to be a marine biologist. Marine biologist. And the reason I wanted to be a marine biologist is I grew up watching Jacques Cousteau on television. You I know? did, too. And, and and what was Mike something rather on Sea Hunt? Yes. And and I loved those shows. I would I would just I loved those shows, and I would just any time I'd have an opportunity to watch one of them, I was going to be watching one of those shows. And that's what I always wanted to be. And I was, when I went to college, my my declared major was marine biology. Okay. And as I got further into it, I began to realize that most marine biologists wind up counting salamanders in some backwoods swamp in southern Arkansas. And I, <laughs> and I said, I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> I, um, I was thinking about it this morning. I, I think I was just, I, I think about him often. He's an old real, uh, real estate kind of guru, but off, a big practitioner. And he said, um, he's so funny and dry, but he was say, if um, what you're going to college for ends in ology, just, just be aware that ology is Greek for no job. <laughs> so it's an ology. I like uh, that one. That's no a good one. There, but, uh, but anyway, I had my my. Uh, I guess I was majoring in biology at the time, and so my my counselor, my advisor, was a biology professor. His name was Hobgood, and uh, he had a terrible stutter. And he was a wonderful man. I loved him to death. But anyway, he after about my, I guess about the end of my second year, I was going to and talking to him, and I was talking about marine biology, and I just wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do, and you know, what else do you think I might be able to do? And and he looked at me and he said, I tell you, I, 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 I tell you, 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 you need to be a doctor. <laughs> and I said, Do what? Well, I never thought about that before. And I thought about it, prayed about it, and said, well, I've got the education for it, and it's certainly a need for it, and mm-hmm. I certainly like people. I always enjoy being around people. And I said, well, yeah, why not? I'll see what it's like. And so I started kind of molding more of my classes around going down that pathway. Mm-hmm. I, I applied for medical school after my third year of college and got in. Here we go. I guess I'm going <laughs> to be a doctor. I guess I'm going to be a doctor. Then my uh, second, at the end of my first year in, in medical school, I was going to school on student loans, didn't have any money. Richard Nixon at that time cut out all the student loan programs and didn't replace them with anything. Really? And so there I sat thinking, well, what am I going to do? I mean, I can't work. I've, I've got too much time. I've got to spend here studying and mm-hmm. going to class and doing all the things that I'm responsible for here. I was worried that I was going to have to drop out of medical school. About that time, my, my roommate, the guy that I had gone to school with at A&M, 
at Arkansas A&M and had a good buddy of mine and we got into medical school at the same time and we were rooming together in medical school and we got to talking and we got to studying and, and calling around and found out that the military had just started a health profession scholarship program in which they would pay your tuition and books and fees and, and give you, I think it was $400 a month or something at that time, which is not a large amount of money as you might imagine. but. $400 a month and to pay you, to allow you to get through medical school. And then you paid them back a year for a year for the time that, that you were doing that. And so we went With service military, mm-hmm. Navy. So if it took you four well, years to get through good, then you did paid four them back years four service. years. Okay. Now residencies and internships and training programs didn't count for that. So anyway, so I, I, we went down to the Naval recruiter's office, you know, that week and said, Hey, tell us about this health profession scholarship program. We got, fees and, and tuition coming up here in a couple mm-hmm. of months and we got nothing the guy told us all about it and signed us up and here we went we were we were navy so i spent he spent we both spent i guess four years in the navy you didn't go back to college no i went to medical still in medical school okay that what they call that tad temporary additional duty okay. so i was i was in the military mm-hmm. but my assignment was to go to medical school okay so and and six weeks i think it was six weeks a year yeah, six weeks a year I had to do active duty and go into the military. And, you know, I worked in naval hospitals two mm-hmm. or three okay. times, you know, one in San Diego and one in San Francisco and one on, in Washington, D.C. I went to the National Naval Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Spent that, that six-week period each year to get that that uh, active duty time you have to get when mm-hmm. you're on when you're on. The, it was in the Naval Reserve. We had uh, active reserves, and so ready reserves, I guess they called it. Yeah, so we had to learn how to be a Navy doctor, which was really not that hard. You'd go down to the dispensary and they, I mean, go down to the to the exchange, Navy exchange, and tell them, what do I need to be a doctor? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, come over here. We'll fix you up. Put you in this line. Yeah. So well, anyway. it worked, seemed like it worked out for everybody. Oh, yeah. Thinking. It was great. It was great. It was a good time. And, I, and, then, and then, of course, about four years in the military, I, I did an internship at Naval Regional Medical Center in Oakland. And it was awesome, you know, San Francisco area doing a residence and an, an internship, and mm-hmm. and then I was going, then I had to go do a sea tour, or what they call sea duty. It was with the Seabees, is who I did. But it, it, during my time in Oakland, I met my my wife. And, Isn't that uh, strange? So at the end so. of that end of that year, we got married, and she went with me over to Spain with the with the Navy, and, and then went to Puerto Rico for two years. So we had a great time. Spent you know, in the Caribbean and in Spain and traveled all over Europe and well, it was good. I bet so. How great. did y'all meet? She was a Navy nurse. Yeah, she was a Navy nurse, and she had gotten into the Navy pretty much for the same reason I had. Her, she was going to school on some loans and scholarships, and she decided she would, would just join the Navy, see mm-hmm. the world, and so she did, at least for a year. Right. <laughs> see the world. See the world. Join the Navy, see the world. Wasn't that their byline? That yeah, I think had? it might have been. All right, you're traveling the world. You're a doctor. You're a doctor now. What happens after your tour is up? Okay, so most doctors starting about that time, maybe a little even before the 1970s when I got out of the military, most doctors did some additional training, residency-type training, to kind of get a little more informational, more training, more education about whatever area that you're wanting to kind of spend your time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, I wanted to do that. And the best family practice, I want to do family practice. Now, when I went into the Navy, I had been accepted into a urology program. I was, they figured I was going to be a urologist because I'd applied for a urology uh, internship because that was what was available. Mm-hmm. 
And so they accepted me into it, and they just assumed I was actually going to be a urologist. I was just looking for a place to go. Right. At the end of that, towards the end, about the middle part of that year, I guess, I told them, I said, no, I, I don't. I don't want to be a urologist. I mean, I enjoyed the surgery and I enjoyed all that kind of stuff. But I said, that's kind of restrictive. I mean, I don't really want to just kind of focus on that one thing. And so, and I really liked kids. I loved kids. And I, I spent a lot of time in a neonatal intensive care unit and, and, and taking care of lots of really sick kids. And, and you know, and, and that's very interesting and very challenging. And so I thought, well, I think I want to go into pediatrics. And I had to make that decision kind of early on in my internship year. Then the rest of the year, I kind of rotated around. We did what I did what we call a flexible internship. We used to call them rotating internships, where we just kind of did a little bit of everything. I did some anesthesia and some general surgery and some ENT and yeah. some pediatrics, and you know, just kind of did something of everything. And everything I got on, I loved it. And I said, "Man, this is what I want to do." Right. Until I went to the next thing, and I yeah. went, "No, this is this is what I want to do." So towards the you know towards the end of the deal. You know, I got accepted into the pediatric residency I'd applied for, and I had to go tell that guy that I didn't want to do that, and I wanted to resign. That oh, he was oh. he was not happy with me. Mm. And anyway, I went out to the fleet at that point, and and, uh, and 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 I said, I think I want to do family practice, and that's what I did when those those years that I was with the fleet, and I was at a naval security group activity in Puerto Rico, and then I was with the CBs in in uh, Spain, in Southern California. And uh, basically, just care of all took care of all their needs, mm-hmm. them and their families. It took, just took care of them, you know, just a family doc. I really so you saw the the husband, the wife, the kids. You just saw everybody and and retirees. Saw right. the retirees in Puerto Rico. All the retirees had come over to the base mm-hmm. for me to see them. And so, yeah, I mean, I took care of all age groups. From you know, I d- delivered a baby or two on the way to the hospital, you know. Yeah. So it was a little bit of everything, and it was great. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed. It. Went to Spain. I delivered a few babies in Spain too. Can you be a family doctor these days? I mean, it's oh, it yeah. harder and harder. Oh, it's, I mean, that, it seems like they always want to, like you said, they want to specialize. Yeah. Well, they, they, the other thing is, is that the people who are specialties, everything that a family doctor does, everything we do, is covered by another specialty. In other words, if I do obstetrics, there's obstetrician gynecologists. If I do GYN surgery, there's obstetrician gynecologists. If I do pneumonias and, and congestive heart failure and heart disease, there's internal medicine doctors. If, okay. if I take care of kids, there's pediatricians. That mean they're over you or they're no, an adjunct? No, they, ju- they, just, they just took a residency program in those particular specialties. They, mm-hmm. you know, like in family practice, we kind of did some of everything mm-hmm. as we went through our three-year residency program. Right. A pediatrician might go through a three-year residency program, and they go through all the different subspecialties of pe- in doing only pediatrics. Okay. They don't take care of older people. So, uh, yes, and, and the family, it's a family practice program that we have here mm-hmm. in, in Athens right now. Right. I mean, it's, it's about 12 residents, and we're training them to do what we did. And we're training them to do obstetrics because most of these kids are going to go into a fairly rural area. I mean, it, there's tons of rural communities who have no access I've, to health care. I've read that. And so having somebody who's got knowledge and abilities in lots of different things is incredibly important. And it, I think and I think everybody ought to have their own family doctor because that he's kind of your quarterback for your health care. And he may not be able to do everything you need, mm-hmm. but he'll know who does and if you need it or not. And so that's what we try to train our family docs. Do they? What we say about family docs is that eighty percent of everything that walks through their door they can take care of. So the other twenty percent, you just got to know your limitations mm-hmm. and know what to do with those people. And that's what we try to teach them to do in that family practice program. How'd you end up in Athens, Texas? That's an interesting story. You know, I, I, I uh, the, the best family practice program in the in the country was at John Peter Smith 
in Tarrant County Hospital okay. District in Fort Worth because it basically the whole thing was run by family practice docs. I think we had a maybe a third and a fourth year surgery resident that we kind of worked under, and we had some surgical staff, you know, some people that were hired by the hospital. I think we had maybe one ER doc that was kind of over the entire emergency room, but, but family practice docs ran all that. We even ran the, the neurosurgical unit. I mean, I, I, we put burr holes in people's heads really? and to let off the, to drain the blood and mm-hmm. to let the pressure off. And sometimes we do it over the phone because the neurosurgeon would be across right. the street. <laughs> you want this size bit, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> right. He's a, he'd be across the street operating at another hospital and we had somebody that was dying and yeah. they needed a burr hole and needed a piece, a piece of bone taken off their skull. Mm-hmm. And he'd talk us through wow. it on the phone. <laughs> awesome. It's a little bit like it's a you know, you're riding the ambulance, you know, and you, you got the phone with Bytel. I mean, think you got the doctor over at Parkland and Bytel and, they're telling you, you know, how to do this. Exactly. You know, it's, so it was the same thing, except we didn't have all that. We yeah. had a telephone. Yeah. We was wired. With a long cord. It was a wired <laughs> telephone, too. And in fact, sometimes it had to be had to go through the nurse. Right. You know, the nurse would be over here talking on the phone and say, he said to do this and this. Yeah, just okay. relay it. <laughs> he said what? He did what? <laughs> you want me to do what? I bet that was interesting work. We used to open chests in the emergency room. It's family practice interns and residents yeah. some guy come in with a gunshot wound to the chest and they have no blood pressure no mm-hmm. pulse we'd take our knives with those knives we'd cut a big opening in their ribs take those rib spreaders and open it up take our knife and scissors and open up their pericardium and sometimes there'd be a big old hole in their heart and we'd put like a foley catheter and poke it in the hole blow mm-hmm. it up and try to stop the flow and keep pumping blood and yeah that would talk, you know we just give them O negative blood because we didn't know what their blood types were right <clears throat> We did some crazy things back in the day, brother. Yeah, crazy did, things. They don't do those things these today. I would be surprised. You know, the, I could talk at John Peter Smith. They have an emergency medicine fellowship there now, or residency program. Uh-huh. So they've got ER docs that run and ER residents that run the emergency room. Now I'm not sure what kind of experience the family practice doctors get in that residency program anymore. They've got. You know, a full full bore surgery residency there. They've got a full bore OB/GYN residency there now. I'm not sure about pediatrics, but I suspect they've got a pediatric residency there now. So I mean, they've got they've got all the specialties represented that kind of push family practice out now. Mm. They still have family practice residency program. I just don't know what their experience is. I don't know. It may be it may still be great. I don't know. They probably ain't cracking no chests. I bet they're not cracking any chests. <laughs> Liability on this. You know, you think about think about that now, and I'm like, good night. Dead. Yeah. We were crazy. You got to do what you got to do. I mean, you're trying. I mean, what's the what's the downside? downside? I mean, for this guy. We had right we here. had one that that uh, the, the resin the, the surgery resin. We the guy came in and he had been shot, stabbed in the chest, I guess, and stabbed right through the right ventricle or the left ventricle, I guess it was. And anyway, he. John, John, I'm not going to say his last name, but John came in. He was our senior resident. We we had cracked his chest, and as, as John was coming down from upstairs, and he walked in, and we'd just gotten the chest open, and he opened up the pericardium, and he took, and there was a hole in his left ventricle, and it was just mm-hmm. squirting blood, you know, right. about that big around, just spraying out. And he took that Foley catheter, and he poked it in that hole, and blew it up, and pulled it back, and stopped it. And we kept pumping, you know, hand compressions on his, pumping his heart, and running in fluids, and all this stuff. And, and finally, John just got frustrated, and he, took his gloves off and threw him and said he's dead and walked out the door yeah. <laughs> and he walked out the door went out to tell the family the guy was dead so he goes out to the emergency room waiting room and tells his family this guy's dead and while he's out there we're still working on this uh-huh. guy 
when he gets a heartbeat back. Yeah. And, and, and a blood pressure. And you know, we're going, uh, <laughs> and John, and John somebody comes, go get John. And John comes walking back by the door. He said, what are you guys doing? And we said, John, he's got a heartbeat and a blood pressure. John says, what? <laughs> and he says, let's get him upstairs. So we rolled him out of there and rolled him up to the OR upstairs and, and uh, repaired the hole in his heart, fixed whatever else was wrong with him. And, and he maintained his blood pressure and was doing great. And, and we were walking out of the emergency room, I mean, walking out of the operating room, and John said, oh, oh. no. I told his family he was dead. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was awesome. So did he go tell them or oh, did he yeah. send somebody oh, else? Oh, no, he went down and told them. He said, I was mistaken. He said, I was mistaken. He's, he's still alive. That was great. Well, we had some great times. Big times. So you're in Fort Worth. Yeah, and we were, I was in Fort Worth, and, and, you know, towards the end of my residency program, I'm thinking, well, you know, I, I need to find a place to hang my hat. And at first I thought, well, I'll just stay in Fort Worth and I'll work because emergency rooms. Because, you know, I, as a resident, I was moonlighting and working emergency rooms at Children's Hospital and, mm-hmm. and various and sundry emergency, minor what, emergency clinics. North what year East was clinic. this now? Mm, that would have been 70, between 78 and 79. Okay. I got finished up in, no, I started in 79 and I finished up in 82. So it would have been 81, 82. Okay. And, and looking around for maybe a place to just work emergency clinics or work in maybe one of the family practice clinics there in that we knew of in 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 the Fort Worth area and and I started kind of going around and looking at other places and what you know my, I'm from Arkansas and my family was still in Arkansas I thought, well we'll go up and look at Arkansas went up and looked at a few places in Arkansas and it just wasn't it just didn't wasn't real appealing and we were at the time we were trying to adopt our first child Dusty and so we were going through an agency and and looking at trying to adopt him and moving out of state would have really complicated all yeah. that and so we thought well maybe we need to try to stay in Texas and so uh, we started looking around locally in the Texas area and, and a guy that had been sort of my he was my second and third year resident when I was going through my residency program and he had moved to Athens and uh, there was also another group, another guy that I'd gone to school with in Arkansas that had gone through his residency program at uh, Fort Worth, mm-hmm. uh, John Peter Smith, and, and I knew him, and I knew, and he was good, and he was smart, and I, and he said, "Why don't you come, guy? Why don't you come to Athens?" And I said, "Well, sure, I'll come and go in with you." So oh, we don't have room for you. You come in and go in Athens. <laughs> so I talked to the other guy who had, had come here, and he was kind of on his own and doing his own thing, and he said, "Yeah, come on." There's again, there's an older guy here, uh, Norris Holt, was about to retire. So he said, there's going to be an opening here in this clinic. You can just come take over his spot. And so that's what I did. We came down here and moved into Athens and hung out my shingle, and the rest is history. Where's your office <clears throat> uh, when originally? And that know, old hospital was still in service. Do you know where the old hospital? Yep. You know, that right across there was the Medical Arts Clinic. Do you remember the Medical yes. Arts? Yes. I was in the Medical Arts Clinic okay. for... I was probably there for 10 years. And then we built our own clinic out here, Lakeland Medical Clinic, was up up where the orthopedic clinics are now. Uh-huh. And we built that clinic and just kind of was still solo practice. People start sharing call that we built our clinic and, mm-hmm. and got out of the other clinic and tried to bring in some other people to do OB. And Family Medical was doing their thing. And then about that time, you know, all the managed care programs were coming to town and they were pitting us against family medical clinic and mm. and you know they would say hey the family medical said they'll do this code for 
$25. Will you do it for less than that? So they were just kind of going back. No, we'll do it for 22 Race to the bottom. Then they'd go back to the hill. They said they'd do it for 22 Can y'all, you got any room in that $25 number you got there? So anyway, we all got, we sat down together. I, 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 told, I called Doug Curran and said, Doug, we need to sit down and talk because we're getting taken to the cleaners here. And so we sat down together and said, let's join together and we'll become one clinic and then that will give us, we'll be the elephant in the room. We'll be the big dog that they got to deal with mm-hmm. if they're going to bring that garbage to town. And it worked. I mean, we were able to have better negotiations as far as prices and what they would pay us and all that sort of thing and able to kind of be able to stay in practice because they were running us out of business with, their, so. with their rates and everything. So anyway, that worked out really well too. So that was good. And we've, you know, Lakeland, and it became Lakeland Medical Clinic. That's what we've been now for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, 25 years, I guess. Are you still involved with that? So I don't know what happened when a doctor retires. I I, I sold out. I mean, that that is what they basically did was just bought my accounts receivable and bowed out. Made you a go-jillionaire. I think I made maybe 20 or $30,000. I was no go-jillionaire. That's a long career. You're doing it a while, so and you're still doing it. What does it take for a doctor to require? Is it like a nurse? You just let your license lapse, or does yeah. anybody ever do that? Or yeah, you can, you do that at lapse. So you can you can. There are retirement modes that you can go into, but basically you can't practice anymore once you let it go, because okay. there's requirements for continuing medical yep. education and, and that sort of thing that you have to go through and, and maintain in order to show competence. And certainly, I don't. I don't know any of us who want to try to keep practicing if we're not competent to practice. I mean, you would hope not. And so, I mean, that, and that's one of the things that you always talk to your buddies about that are younger and doing the same thing. Say, look, you know, keep an if you, eye if on you me. keep you keep an eye on me. If you see me slipping, you need to tell me. I have no desire to hurt anybody. I do not want to do that. We watch each other, and and you know, and you still, you know, like I, I still feel like I'm competent, but I've still got other people watching me right. and being sure. Don't be afraid to question. Don't be afraid to say, what are you doing? Yeah. Bring, me, bring me the bad news. <laughs> say, what's wrong with early. you, dude? What are yeah. you thinking? Uh, so, I wish politicians would kind of do that. So. I think it seems like somebody told me that there was a 98-year-old judge that some place, they, they took him off took him off the bench. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> I, you know, he didn't even totally know any difference. He's, yeah, he he's got know. another bench out here in yeah, front of the library. Set him out in front of the library and let him pronounce judgments on right. people. I don't know. But it doesn't happen very often. You were a scout leader. I was like your um i actually don't remember now if you did like an opening or a closing it was closing was yeah would you call it it was a closing ceremony you know we and yeah. we did the we did the scout minute scout master yeah minute. scout master minute that's what it was that was good were you a scout oh yeah they, I, was, I was a, I, I was a scout when i was a kid growing up for one year okay and then the scout master quit and nobody wanted to pick it up and i wasn't up for doing lone scout no. so <laughs> The finest experience was sea base. See, that's what I was gonna say. I never. That was the one. I just. That sounded like so much. Fun. Oh, we lived on a sailboat for a week or ten days. I forget how long it was. Maybe ten days. Yeah. We lived on a sailboat. God. We'd go snorkeling every day, and we'd we you know getting shells and exploring these deserted islands, uh-huh. and, and we got to got to weather some storms, you know, on the sailboat yeah. and. It was an experience. Uh, it was, was. A, it was more of a vacation than in most vacations I've ever had. <laughs> it was wonderful. Right. Sleeping on the sleeping on the deck of that thing, just covered with a sheet, uh-huh. with a slow, steady, warm rain raining down on you. Oh, I mean, it's just 
unbelievable. Unbelievable. So you put in your 40 years as a doctor. You deliver a few babies. Is it weird going around town and seeing? I remember you. I I remember you. It's more fun than a barrel of monkeys. I've had experiences where, you know, like yesterday even, this lady, 30, 35-year-old lady sitting there in the office, and I'm talking to him, and and, uh, she says, you know, you delivered me. And I said, oh, did I deliver your baby? She said, no, you delivered me. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, oh, really? Well, that's interesting. And and then I go to places like at my daughter's wedding, this man walks up to me, and he said, I I just wanted to shake your hand and tell you hello. And he, he says... Do you see that 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 one that woman with that young beautiful young woman standing next to her? That's my wife and daughter. And twenty six years ago, you saved both of their lives. Really? Yeah. And I was like, what? And he so he kind of told me the story of mm-hmm. what they had an obstetrical problem with. It. I mean, it was a very devastating obstetrical mm-hmm. problem. Required immediate action. Right. They weren't even my patient, right. but I happened to be there, and so I took care of the situation for them. And and. Uh, and stop the bleeding and by doing a C-section. This mm-hmm. did an emergency C-section, and we and we got the little girl out, and, and there they stood. Isn't that? And uh, you know that's, that's that makes you feel good. That I that's rewarding. So. That's rewarding. And I've got a number of people who have come up to me at some point in time, and of course, you know, I can't remember everybody, wow. but and they'll say, "You you may or may not remember me, but you saved my life." And then they'll tell me their story, and mm-hmm. and, and I think that has meaning for people too to kind of be able to go back and express some appreciation. Oh, I bet so, yeah. yeah. That was on the fire department. You, And it's probably hard for people to find out maybe about who actually made a run on somebody but mm-hmm. saved their life. But it was very rare for, you know, to get any, you know, something like that with hey, I, well, yeah, We're in a, in a wreck. Yeah. We're, you know, I fell off. I did was something. I was, but isn't it special when it does it happen? Does. <laughs> it does. It's, you know, it doesn't happen that often with me either, but... It does happen, and it's just real special yeah, when it does. It is. And you hope they grow up to do something good. You know, you know I, when I was in the mountains of, of uh, Africa, in Ethiopia, up in the, the, doing some medical clinics in this little village that's out in the middle of nowhere, and this lady comes walking in, and she's in labor. They, they've, somehow they knew she had twins. And I'm not sure if she had gone into, there's a, they could go into town, you could get on a little bus or you could get a, a, a horse cart and you mm-hmm. could go into to town. And they had a little clinic in town where they could do some ultrasounds from time to time and they had electricity. And it, But it was about a four hour donkey cart ride to, to get into town. <clears throat> and she shows up at this little mountain clinic in labor and they knew she had twins. And the first one was breech. And of course, the little there's a little nurse practitioner type. She's probably just a nurse, but it's an old Ethiopian nurse. So they said we have to send her into town. <clears throat> and it's getting dark. Okay, so it's late evening. By donkey, by cart. donkey cart because it's just a donkey trail. I mean, there's no road. Right. There's no road up there. It's just a trail. And they're going to put her in a donkey cart, cart and send her four to four to five hours down the road at night, in labor with twins, breech position. To, do, to have them do a C-section. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> I said, we're going to deliver them right here, vaginally. You and I. 
said, and she, oh, she, she, her eyes got big as saucers, and she was so. Oh, no, we can't do that. And she's, she's bad position. We gotta. She needs a C-section. I said, doesn't matter what she needs. This is what she's gonna get. And so I got to deliver those twin babies right there. And then that that little nurse was just amazed. Of course, I delivered a bunch of twins, but before that, mm-hmm. and uh, I delivered a bunch of breach. Bunch of breaches, right? And of course, no, hardly anybody delivers breaches anymore. But I had done it back in early in my career, coming up and done a lot of deliveries like that. And so we got her two babies out of there. And I, rem- the thing I remember most about that, about four hours later, she was getting ready to leave and go home. I mean, four hours is about as long as they keep anybody. And so I walk into this little room just to kind of give them a final little look to look at before they took off. Of course, they were tiny little babies, but right. they weren't fed very well yeah. during the pregnancy anyway. But but they were doing great, and they were robust, and they were breastfeeding good, and everything was looking great. And so I go into this room, and she's kind of sitting over next to the window, and she's kind of covered with a blanket. And, it, I, and I'm thinking, oh, she's got a black blanket over her. Well, I got over there, and it was a white blanket covered with flies. And she got up and took those babies and took off up into the mountain. And that's the memory that is just, just etched into my memory of thinking about, you know, we think we have it hard in this country. Those folks have it hard. It is almost ex- purely survival of the fittest for so many people in the world. So many people are so much worse off than we can imagine that it's just crazy. I mean, you, can you you know can you imagine? My mother couldn't imagine that there were places in the world that didn't have clean water and mm-hmm. electricity. She was she said, "You mean they don't have clean water to drink?" When I started Hope Springs Water. Said, no, Mom, they don't. I said, there's there's over a billion people in the world that don't have access to clean water. She said, what? You've got to be kidding. I said, no, I'm not kidding. And they get sick and they die as a result of the water they drink. Of course, that's kind of what moved me to do what we did, and, uh, and I'm glad we done it. We've 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 helped some people, and uh, hope we continue to. And continue to do that. I don't know if you remember. It was the last time that I saw you as a patient, but <laughs> the way I remember it, I don't think you had decided what you wanted to do yet. Was there a time when you were deciding, you know, okay, I'm phasing out of being a doctor, and but I want to do something else, and I don't know what that is? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, to, to, to take something that you spent 50 years doing right. and then just to suddenly say, okay, I'm going to stop doing that, you, you got to fill a void somewhere. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, I was working 60-hour weeks for most of my life and yeah. weekends and nights. And to just suddenly drop that, I, you know, I might have gone nuts. Yeah. I don't know. But, you know, 10 years before I retired is when, you know, when God laid Hope Springs water on my heart. Okay. My first short-term mission trip, medical mission trip, was in 1974. I was still in medical school. Mm-hmm. It was through the Southern Baptist Convention Foreign Mission Board. They chose me to go on this this health-related uh, mission trip, uh, and I, I went to the Philippine Islands and, and spent time with the Charles Norwood family. And they were medical missionaries in the Philippines at okay. that time on Mindanao, which is the most remote island. It's one of the bigger islands, but it's a very remote island. And they had a little hospital there in a little village called Mati. And he would go out and he'd go on razoos up into the mountains and we'd go up into places where they were these you know the national geographic reported on this right. brand new tribe that was up there then we talked to the people oh, they've always been there we just leave them alone right. yeah they're, they're 
<laughs> we just don't bother them. They don't bother us. It's all fine. But anyway, that was my first short-term mission trip. And I spent three months in the Philippines at that time when I was in medical school. And that was and it was an incredible experience. And at that time, you know, I thought, well, gosh, do, do I want to be a medical missionary? Does that is that what God's wanting me to do? Is that what I'm supposed to make happen? And But then I knew, I said, well, I've, I've got this commitment to the military and what, how's that going to work out and I'm not married and what's going to happen there and you know there's so many questions that it was just kind of hard to know what was going on so anyway I wound up going through the things that we've already talked about and going in the Navy and getting married and then coming to Athens and and so I started doing some short-term mission trips after we got to Athens too after we got established pretty good and I, you know I'd go to South America and Mexico and various places on these one to two week medical mission trips and we'd do short term medical missions and work with people as far as taking care of their whatever health needs we could address with them. You know, that was all good but one of the things that always came up and that was always noticed and always discussed on every one of these trips that we would go on was the incredible problem that people in the areas where we worked had with water access and the illnesses that were related to water. As a physician, I saw all those illnesses. I saw cholera. I saw, I saw you know, uh, uh, typhoid. Uh, I saw amoebic dysentery. I saw all of those kinds of things and, and, and the devastating effects that those things had. You know, gastroenteritis, diarrhea, vomiting in, in small children, it kills them, just kills them. And, and so, you know, and you, when you see all of that and, you're, and you're, all that kind of stuff is just kind of swirling around in your head and you're thinking, gosh, why, why can't we do something about this? We've got decent water in the United States. Why can't these people have decent water? What's the deal? And you'd go there and they'd be drinking out of these mud holes and these creeks and springs and in various and sundry places. And then you'd see all these illnesses that were a, a result of, of what they were doing and and you just think, gosh, and, and we did some things. We, you know, along the way, when I started going on some trips with the church, we did some things along the way where we kind of would help with some water access issues and that sort of thing. But as far as doing anything that was just really focused and concerted and making it happen, we just really didn't have a, a real good way of doing that. And after after going, going through all that, on our pastor, at one point in time, back in 20, I think it was, I guess it was 2019, no, 2009. <laughs> A decade off. Yeah, 2009. <laughs> he he challenged the members of our church to to pray and to ask God to show us something that was of meaning to Him that we could help with, that we could jump in and help with. So I start praying that prayer, and at the same time, I was reading a book. I was reading a book. Uh, by Richard Stearns, who at that time was the president of World Vision U.S., and the name of his book was The Hole in Our Gospel. And uh, in that book, he talked about a lot of different things and uh, that were holes in our gospel, that, in other words, saying that there are things that happen that shouldn't happen uh, in a, in a, with a group of people who are Christians and have concern about things that they shouldn't be, be an issue. We should be addressing those things. The chapter that really stood out to me and got my attention was the one on clean water. And he had some really staggering statistics in that book. And he would talk, he said that, uh, you know, that, that a child died every 10 seconds from a water-related illness. And that women and children spent 200 million hours a day walking back and forth 
to a distant water source. 200 million hours every day walking back and forth to a water source just to get water for their day's needs. I mean, that's, that's a workforce of 20 million people working 10 hours a day. Yeah. You think there's some wasted effort going on there that could be better spent doing something else that's more productive than just fetching water? And, you know, and then talked about the, the number of parents in the world who had to make the decision every day. Do I give my child potentially contaminated water to drink or do I watch them just suffer without anything to drink and take a chance on getting sick? Or just make them make them not have just out of mm-hmm. thirst or have horrible thirst problems. Right. Which what do I do? How, do? how do I make that decision? And you got to make that decision every day. That's not right. Yeah. People shouldn't have to do that. All that stuff's kind of running through my head and all this stuff. And so I, we're about to go down to the to the valley down on the Rio Grande. We're going to go down in some of those barrios down there, and we're going to think we're doing a vision clinic or a medical clinic. I can't remember now. Been, been a year or two since that was yeah. all taking place. But I think it was a medical clinic of some kind. Eyes are medical. And uh, so, of course, before we went on any of those trips, we'd go to the store and we'd go to the bottled water section and we'd buy a bunch of bottled water and, and take it with us because you can't drink the water right. down there. You, you drink the water. You get sick. And so I'm, I go over to the to Brookshire's looking at standing there in the water aisle. And you, you know, at, at most of the grocery stores, there's an entire aisle. There is. At the grocery store. Different kinds of water. You want distilled water? You want spring water? That's devoted to water. Bottled water. And you're sitting there, and I'm sitting here thinking, here we are in the United States where I can go to an abandoned building, and if there's a faucet sitting outside, I can turn it on and drink that water, and it's safe. And I said, and here we're we're doing this, and I I went and looked looked it up, and it was at that time, this was in 2009, it was an $18 billion industry a year. $18 billion with a B dollar a year industry to sell bottled water in a country where you can get it out of any tap. And when bottled water first started, I thought it was the craziest idea I'd ever heard. I said, why would you pay water in a bottle? Why would you pay money for that when you just gotta go to the faucet and you can drink it? What's what I didn't I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. But it was an industry and, and it people were, were able they were able to convince people that they needed that bottled water. And I'm thinking, well gosh, that's somebody ought to do something about this, about this issue with all this bottled water and all this money being made off of bottled water and all these people over here that don't have water to drink. Somebody should do something about that. Somebody. Somebody ought to do something, right? I had a chief that always said somebody ought to do something. It was always something. And I said, you know, apparently somebody has a last name too. Somebody else. <laughs> somebody else needs somebody to do something. Somebody else needs to fix this. And that's where I was, I'll tell you. I, honestly, I was. I was like, somebody ought to do something about that. And honestly, you know, I thought, well, you know, probably somebody is. It's a big problem. It's a big world. Somebody and, is. And at that moment, while I was standing there in that water, I, water, you know, God talks to us in lots of different ways. You just got to listen. And, and I think one of the ways that he'll sometimes talk to us is he'll put a question in our head that may have some meaning about some particular thing that he's interested in that he wants us to be interested in. And the question that he put in my head when I'm standing there looking at going, all the way from this end of the aisle, this end, looking at all this water. And she said, what would it look like if there was a bottle of water on the shelf that was sold on the shelf just like everybody else, and it used all of its profits to try to bring safe water to people living in the developing world? What would that look like? Would that be something that would appeal to me? Is that something I would buy? Would I purchase that water? And I thought, well, yeah, I think I would. So I thought, well, there's probably somebody out there doing that. I just need to find them. Mm -hmm. I can write them a check, and my, my conscience will be clear. 
and I move on, right? So I start, I own the internet and I start looking and I look and I look and I found water companies that gave a percentage and water companies that gave a little bit up to a certain amount and water companies that gave a penny off each bottle that they, they know there was lots of that, but nobody was using all their profits, all their available profits to try to bring safe water to people living in the developing world. And so, as you can imagine, that kind of left me with a, a bit of a problem, a dilemma. Well, now what you going to do? Yeah, now what am I going to do? And to be honest, I tried to forget it. I said, well, I'm a busy I'm a busy man, right? I'm a family doctor. I work 60 hours a week. I deliver babies. I do surgery. I see people in the clinic. I work on weekends. I don't have time to do that kind of stuff. Well, God didn't let me alone with that. He started waking me up at night with dreams of babies dying, of diarrheal illnesses and dehydration. And you know, I mean, I'm waking me up in a sweat. That happened about three nights in a row. On Thanksgiving Day in 2009, I said, enough, you got my attention. I called Steve Aiken. He's our missions pastor at the church. And, he, and I said, Steve, I got something I need to talk to you about. I said, I, I'm not going to bother you today on Thanksgiving Day, but I want to talk to you. I, I want to get with you tomorrow and, and visit with you about something that God's laid on my heart that I need to talk about. And so he said, sure. So we'll, we'll meet tomorrow. So we the next day we met at the little donut shop up there on Main Street or on Palestine Street and, and uh, sat there and I told him the story I just told you. And I fully expected him to say, you've lost your mind. <laughs> And you know, there's no way we can do that because I said, you know, we, we need to start a we need to start a nonprofit. We need to start a, a company that bottles water. We need to sell the water. We need to use the profits to drill wells. We, and here, and, and I'm a, a medical doctor, and he's a missions pastor. And how much experience do you think we have in b- starting water bottle, bottle bottle water companies or, or drilling companies to drill water wells? Not much. Huh? <laughs> Somewhere Not below much. zero, would to be exact. And so, I mean, I'm sitting here telling him this, and, and, he, and instead of him saying, you've absolutely lost your mind, he says, man, that's a great idea. Why hadn't we thought of that before? <laughs> I'm just I like, can see him saying that. Uh-oh, we got problems now. Cause, uh, 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 here, we, here we go. Here we go. So I got busy, and, and I got a, an incorporated. I, I'll tell you how na- naive we were. I got this got Hope Springs Water Incorporated, just a company, and a mm-hmm. nonprofit. I, I think I registered it as a nonprofit corporation. Right. Well, I was naive enough to think, well, it, you know, if you can sell stuff and make a profit as long as you use the profits for something good, then it's it's nonprofit, right? right. Wrong. <laughs> if you're selling something and making a profit, you are not a nonprofit. And so in about, in about January or so, we finally got the final word because somebody brought that up at one of the, one of those lawyers that was on our board, he brought it. I said, "Yeah, I'm not sure you can do this." I said, "What do you mean? We're using it for good. We're, we're not we're not keeping the money. We're using it to do good uh-huh. stuff in the world." And he said, "Yeah, but you're selling this water and you're making money. That doesn't you're not a nonprofit if you oh well no we're using it for good stuff." Anyway, we got another opinion from some guy, some lawyer up mm-hmm. in Dallas that he knew, and that guy said, "You guys are crazy." <laughs> he said, "There's no way you can do that." Uh-huh. So we had to form another. Company. Okay. So then we had a for-profit company and a non-profit company, and the for-profit company sells the water. It's a subsidiary of our non-profit, basically owned by the non-profit. So a non-profit can't sell anything. Okay. You can you can offer things up that people can donate to you for. You've okay. probably seen some of those things right. where you know you, it's a donation. Yeah, it's a okay. donation. You're donating, so, but you can't go to Brookshire's and donate to get this water off the shelf. You want to do that? No, you're buying a product. Right. 
Okay. And you receive, and, and even if you say, for example, you went to some other deal, and they said, "Okay, we have these T-shirts that we want to give you, mm-hmm. and you can make a donation, and we'd appreciate a donation of twenty dollars yes. or whatever." You can deduct only the amount over what the value of that T-shirt is. So we had to form two corporate, two companies, two corporations to get this going. We we again just totally naive, had no idea how to do any of this. We started off, we finally decided, well, we're just going to fund wells. We're just going to collect money and we're going to fund these wells. We're going to sell this water and, and we're going to fund these wells. Well, selling the water was the first big problem. And, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. How do you market and how do you find a bottler and how do you get transportation? And, how, you know, the list just goes on and on and on and on. And all these grocery stores and chains and Walmarts and all this stuff, they've all got vendors that lined up for miles to try to come <coughs> sell them stuff and put stuff in their stores. And so trying to get all that done was was a chore. It took us a several years to get into Brookshire's. I'll never forget. Aiken and I went to the Brookshire's to talk to the water water guy first time. I don't remember when it was. It was years and years ago. It was just him and I at that point. We didn't have anybody else really working with it. We had some people on the board, but they, didn't, they were busy doing other things. But Aiken and I went over to the Brookshire's, and we go into the water manager, category manager for water, going to his office. Like in Athens? Or no, like it's over in, in, Tyler. in Tyler. And go into his office and sit down. We had one business card between us, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I said, well, this, "Can we can we have this back when you're done with this only one we have?" And uh, and so we told him what was going on, and he said, "The first thing you got to remember, water is water." And then and he stopped when he said, "Said water is water. You've got to give people a good reason to buy your water over somebody else's water." And, of course, and he said, and this is your billboard. That's your advertisement. Yes. Looking at the label on the bottle. Was it that label? No, it was a different okay. label. Then. It was a lot busier and had a lot more information on it. Mm-hmm. But they, the people over... Look pretty? That made to look... It, the logo was the same. Okay. But but actually it wasn't the same because it was, had some green and some other stuff in it. They changed the colors. But And at that time, they didn't start buying our water. They didn't start buying our water until a couple of years later. And, and I remember going into the guy's office again in tell, talking about Hope Springs and what we were trying to accomplish and this and that and that we'd been around now for two or three years and same guy and we were selling water just through you know local companies yeah. local places and the dealerships and automobile dealerships and you know just various and sundry places and no it was a different guy okay. they change them around pretty frequently okay. at Brookshire's and he said something about marketing for things that are beneficial to people. I forgot the name of what the, that kind of marketing is called, but he said something about it. He said, you know, this this could work. You might be able to sell your water based on doing good. And so they started buying it. And they bought it fair for a while, and but it didn't really go great until five or six years ago. I was in I was in Africa. I was in Ethiopia on a mission, on a trip, drilling trip. I get this text from the water guy, and I don't really want to use his name, I guess, but uh, his name's Colton. He was the, the category manager for water at Brookshire's. Colton's from Athens. I delivered Colton. <laughs> and he had some problems at birth, and he says, I, I saved his life. And he said, and he's, you know, he's a Christian man, and he and he said, you know, I, I got to looking, and I saw your bottle of water sitting on my desk. And he said, and I got to thinking about that. And he said, is this an extra moment for me? Am I have I been put in this position to try to help Hope Springs Water do what it is that they're supposed to do, and to help out the people who don't have water? 
And so he really went to bat for us. I mean, and, and we got into all the Brookshire stores, all the Super One stores, and and had and he helped us with doing sales and doing specials and doing buy one get one right. type promotions. And I mean, he was unbelievably right helpful. Man for the job. As long as he stayed in that position, we did great. Yeah. We're doing okay now, but but our sales have fallen off a lot since he left that spot. But he moved to a different different spot with Super One, and we're doing really good in Super One now. So, anyway, it's 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 that we're still want to try to get back in Brookshire's and like to get into into H E B. But those are hard markets to break sure. into, especially when you're just it's a, a competitive shelf space. Oh my gosh, competitive shelf space and the margin on a case of water is just terrible. You know, that was one of the things the the guy told us the first time we went into was. Boy, you picked a bad product if you're, <laughs> if you're trying to make a lot of money because he said there's just no margin on water because a lot of people use it as a loss leader. A lot of these companies, you know, like like Coca-Cola, they'll give their water away as long as you buy their other drinks and other stuff that they've got. So, I mean, you know, it's hard to compete with that. Our marketed or should be marketed to a particular group of people who want to do good with their money, with their when they buy if they're going to buy a bottle and, and we've always said if you don't buy a bottle of water don't don't buy a bottle of water don't buy our bottle of water send us a donation we'll take a check yeah but if you're going to buy a bottle of water why would you not buy this bottle of water why would you not buy one that's going to do good with its with its profits i mean we've been involved in water projects for years and what we discovered after a couple of years of of funding wells was that there were a lot of people that wanted to go and drill wells. They wanted to go and have the experience and to see the place. And we did, we decided that you know they become good ambassadors for Hope Springs Water or for the for the problem, if if not for us, at mm-hmm. least to try to help solve the problem. And and they go and they see the problem firsthand and they interact with those people that are suffering with those problems. They're going to be much more likely to go back and talk it up. Wherever I wonder if they, somebody from Brookshire's has anybody from Brookshire's ever been on We've trip? invited them multiple times, but they've just never been able to make it. But mm. we'd love for them to go. <laughs> Hello, Brookshire's, I'd love for you to go. But we'd love to take some of them with us because I think it would be, it's life-changing. I mean, mm-hmm. most of the people we take on these trips, it's a, a life-changing experience. I mean, we've we've either drilled wells or been associated with uh, fun- funding wells or we did a water, we did a rain catchment pro- program in uh, in Rwanda. Or we paid for them to, to dig out this great big hole and made it and then concreted it in and then had this huge water catchment deal for the rains during the rainy mm-hmm. season. They catch this water and they did a big, big process for this the area. This whole area utilized that water. Mm-hmm. We've been we were associated in Sierra Leone. We were we we funded a there was a huge outbreak of cholera in Sierra Leone and there was it all most of it came from this one big major water source people had to have it there was no other place for them to get their water so they were all going there and getting this water and winding up the cholera a lot of people were dying and so we funded a deal where they was there was a, a little silver impregnated deal that they were able to put in this water purified the water if they left the it whole there. big catchment no no for, for, for each, each little person, container each oh. person okay you drop it into their container and, okay. and it was reusable so they could come back and use it many times really and so we we were able to do that it was like fifty thousand people that were affected through that so we were real happy about that we we've we've done water safe water projects and we did in belize we we recovered 
probably 50 to 80 wells that were had been abandoned because of rust. I mean, the, the, the water in that part of the world is fairly caustic, and it caused a lot of rust in the metal parts of some of these. Even they were, they were galvanized metal, but they still would, would rust, and the water would turn red and was bitter, and so give people belly cramps, and so they wouldn't drink it. Took out those metal parts, and we replaced them with PVC and stainless steel, recovered those wells and were able to, like I said, 50, Bruce Hines was was the, the primary guy behind all of that, mm-hmm. getting all of that done in, in, in Belize. And we've, we've now got a couple of two or three drilling rigs in uh, Guatemala. And this next month, we've got a group of guys going to Guatemala to drill and drill what to drill wells in, in that in that region up in sort of the low mountainous region of, uh, of Guatemala and then in some of the lowlands on the on the east coast of Guatemala. We've got a couple of drilling rigs in Nicaragua. We just sent two really nice, big drilling wheels, drilling the rigs that are capable of going six to 800 feet deep if necessary. It's capable of, of air drilling, hammer drilling if necessary in Nicaragua. And we've got teams that go down there on a regular basis. Of course, Ethiopia, we've got a, we have our own nonprofit organization in Ethiopia with our own employees. Well, actually, they're their own employees, but they're our, they, we, fund, we fund everything for them mm-hmm. so that they're able to do what they do. They do the drilling, and, and we go over and join them a few times a year, but we, we've committed to the government of Ethiopia to provide between 18 and 30 wells every year where we've started sanitation projects in Ethiopia where we're doing toilets in the schools. This is an interesting story on women's health and women's menstrual management. One of the things that we, again, there's so many things that we're not aware of being from a developed country mm-hmm. as far as the sure. problems that are experienced in under underdeveloped countries. We were on a trip doing uh, deworming, doing a deworming program in uh, teaching uh, health education in some of the schools in uh, in this region of, of Ethiopia. One of the teachers came up to one of the folks that was on the trip with us and asked them, what do you have to empower women? Think about that. What do you have to empower women? What was he talking about? I mean, we didn't know what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. And so we said, well, um, we'll think about it. <laughs> and so we talked around and we started asking around and trying to figure out what exactly he was talking about. And what we discovered in that area, in those re- there's no stores, there's no place to buy menstrual management you know, pads and whatever that women have to have to manage their menstrual cycles when they have them. And women have them every month. Yeah. And like clockwork, starting around 12, 11, 12, 13 years old. Yeah. And all these kids are in school. And most of these girls don't even own a pair of underwear. I mean, there's no place to get that sort of thing. And so these girls were using leaves and, and grass and all kinds of things to try to, to try to manage their menstrual cycles. And the vast majority of them wound up just not going to school during that time. Okay. They'd miss school for a week every month. So a fourth of their schooling, they're missing out on. And what would then happen, consequently, is many of them would wind up dropping out of school because they got so far behind. And so that's what he was talking about when he started talking about that. And the other thing was with, with um, the sanitation, with toilets. And, you know, they, their toilet system was awful. But anyway, with the, the menstrual management, so we started looking around trying to find a menstrual management product that was was washable and reusable and, and would allow these girls to stay in school right. during their menstrual cycle. And so, and we found it. And, we, and we've got groups of women all around this area who are sewing those kits that costs about $10 to, to, to make a kit, not counting the time and effort right. of, of these women sewing these things. And it's a Velcro 
pad. They get like five pads, and they get two pair of underwear with Velcro sewed in so that they can put the pads in them. And they get a towel and some soap and, you know, uh, that sort of thing. And, and, and we give these away when we go on these trips. We, get, we talk to these women about their bodies, these girls. Mm-hmm. Most of them don't have a clue what's going on when their menstrual cycle starts. It just it scares them to death probably. Sure. And so we talk to them about it. Even the young girls, we start talking to them about what's going to happen to their bodies as their bodies change and talk to the older girls about their menstrual cycles. And, and we have these kits that we give to them so that they're able. And what's really cool is we'll drive through these villages and you'll see all these things hanging out they on the line. And, and <laughs> that they've washed them and they're drying them out. And so they're, they're using them. And they, and they last two to three years. So, I mean, these girls are, have this for the two, to th- two or three years while they're in school. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we go back to these same kind of, these same places fairly often, not fairly often, maybe once a year. And so we can replace them if they have issues or problems. And so, I mean, it's just been it's just been an eye opener. And now we're starting. We've gotten into an agreement with the government of Ethiopia to start building toilets, gender specific toilets, mm-hmm. so that the, you know you don't have one outhouse that's shared by both boys right. and girls, and it usually doesn't have a door. And so the girls just don't go to the bathroom. Don't feel mom. Yeah. Either they don't go to the bathroom or they don't go to school. Yeah. And so, you know, we're trying to make it so that it's something that they can have some dignity. And, and the same thing with their menstrual cycles, giving those girls some dignity with mm-hmm. their menstrual cycles. You know, a lot of those girls, would you'd, you'd, it wasn't uncommon to go into a school and these girls walking around, they'd have blood on their dresses mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, just because yeah. they couldn't manage their menstrual cycle. And that's got to be embarrassing. I mean, that's, there's no dignity in that. And so being able to provide that for those girls has just been... It's been great, and to see the looks on their faces and the smiles, you know, when they get their kits, and yeah. it's really cool. Why do you think? I mean, it's clear that it's the simplest solutions make the biggest difference: clean water and the ability to have some hygiene. Why is it that so many people are still in need of it? It seems like a government would realize that and would realize the benefit for. A population and that it was simple in today's with the advancements that we have today to be able to do that for more and more people and it seems like the only reason not to do it is I don't know it seems like it would be sinister almost yes it, it has to, not it, you it. you hit the nail on the head when you said it seems you like leadership would do something about it and there's two things one is is that unfortunately there are, are a lot of leaders who don't want their people to do well because that's how they stay in power if you've got a group of people who are struggling to survive every day they don't have time to think about how corrupt you are and all the other things that are going on through your government. Fortunately, I don't think that's a large number of those countries, but it's there. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, that's how they control their populace is they keep them poor and they keep them sick and they keep them without things. And, but then I think there are also that is that group of governments who just don't have the money. And then there's also buried in every government program is corruption, sure. including ours. Sure. Surprise, surprise. Absolutely. And so there's corruption at all levels in all those government type those 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 governments throughout the world. And you you hope if you're a good leader, and there's lots of good leaders out there that are trying to do the right thing, and trying to get that done through the the bureaucracy of everything that has to take place, I'm sure is is quite intimidating for for a lot of those guys. And and I, we've met some we've met leaders in all these countries where we work who are, I feel are genuinely interested in trying to do what's best for their people. And they just struggle with it all the time. It's trying, as far as trying to get things done, 
under a burgeoning bureaucracy just like we see in this country. When, when we first went to Ethiopia, the president of Ethiopia was a man who had come from one of these villages up in the mountains there around where we have our base of operations in, mm-hmm. in uh, Bantu, Ethiopia. Just a very poor farmer's area, lived dirt floors, mud huts, grass roof. That's where he grew up. And he was the president of Ethiopia. And he's the one who invited us to come in and to start doing these things. And he said that you pick a place where you want to build a school and I'll give you 10 acres. And you build a school and you start teaching these kids. And he said, and, and if you want if you want to drill water wells, you just come drill them. I'll take care of running interference for you. He was a figurehead. He really had no control over any purse strings. He was a, a, a leader of the people. He would go to all the, the official functions. But he was able to give permission to do these things. He was able to grant some of these if you're going to build a school, I can get you land. If you're going to do some water works, I can kind of help move the skids for you so you can okay. do these water water projects that you want to do. Well, good for him. He knew how to yeah. push well, things he was, through. He was an older guy. And, he, and we, in fact, he invited us to the presidential palace, and we all had dinner at the presidential really? palace couple of times it was he was a he was a, just a nice old man mm-hmm. you know he's a nice man he found a way to do some good mm-hmm. through y'all mm-hmm. but it's been but a trip paul it's been an ex- inspiring story i mean i've i buy your water oh good and thanks melissa wanted me to tell you that whatever you've done to the new bottle she likes them much better there there's more plastic in them they stand it, up the other ones you like put them in and that was because they didn't have enough plastic in them. And, and it's cost. I mean, you know, sure. if, if the bottler can save an extra eighth of a cent on a bottle, he's going to save an extra eighth of a cent on a bottle, yeah. you know, because he, he bottles billions of them every year. Right. Water's water. Water bottle. is water. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I just tell people, I say, you know, you're, you're, if you're going to buy water, it's okay, so you're going to pay a few pennies more per bottle if you're going to buy Hope Springs water. If you're going to buy water anyway, buy one that you're going to do some good with. I agree. Why would, why would you want to buy it? I'm not going to call any. I don't buy a ton of bo- bottled water. No. I mean, every Honestly, now and then, I need, you know, you got a faucet. You got a water hose. You got some place you can put your hand in the sink. That's You're, where I usually but, drink my water. I don't drink, yeah. I don't buy a lot of bottled water. But if I'm going to buy, buy it, it, I buy this one. I definitely buy Hope Springs. And you've got the deal with Amazon. Y'all are set up, I, I don't know how much y'all get. Every now and then I get an email saying, you know, Hope Springs got this much water. You're talking about Amazon Smile? Yes. They stopped it. What? Yeah. They just discontinued it. The whole deal? The whole deal. Really? Yeah. What was the reasoning behind that? I guess they needed more money. You know, he, that more guy's, robots. Yeah, you know, that guy's not making enough money. Yeah, he needed, needed to buy more, more, buy up more warehouse space. But anyway, yeah. Okay. They don't do it anymore. But we did. We got we did pretty well with Hope Springs Water. I mean, we were making a few thousand dollars a year through yeah, that. Thousand dollars is a thousand dollars. Yeah. You know, it costs us about between eight and ten thousand dollars to drill a well. And it costs us about that same amount to do a sanitation project. If there's anybody that has an interest in, say, hey, my rich uncle Bob died recently and left me this big chunk of, ch- chunk of change, and I want to kind of do something for him that would be good, we'll drill you a well. Okay. And, we'll, and we'll put a sign on it that says Uncle Bob's well. There you go. And and so, I mean, funding our wells is, we still depend mostly on donations. We get some money from our water sales, but, in, you know, trying to, again, trying to get water sales up to the point that it's necessary to be a significant source of income, it's hard. It's got to come through 
grocery chains, I would imagine, pretty much. Does the, it? For the most part, grocery chains, I mean, you know, there are these distributors and trying to break into a distributorship of some kind, you know, that takes our water, you know, to, to get your water on their truck that they take around to all the mini marts and the moms and pops and oh, the gas yeah. stations and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's tough. Tougher than Brooks. Because, I mean, their their shelf space is really limited. Uh, yeah. It's the back of a truck. You know, trying to break into that deal is also somewhat difficult. But, boy, if you ever could, that would be a big market, too, is the mini marts and the mom and pops and the you know, gas stations. Mm-hmm. Again, we're in East Texas. So you're in Brookshire's. You're in? Super One. Super One. That's a subsidiary of Brookshire's. They, okay. own, they own Super One Foods. Okay. So you got your eye on some other biggies. Well, we're, we're looking at it. We're, we're, we're hoping... We're going to make a run at HEB again at the end of this year or the first of next year. They they make all of their decisions about their whole year. All those decisions are made as far as where they're going, to, what they're going to carry and where it's going to be and how much they're going to buy and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all made in the first couple of months of the year, okay. January through maybe the middle of March. And if you're not in there by then, forget sure. it. You know, HEB in the past, and, they, and as far as I know, they've stopped doing it unless they're going to start it up again this year. The year that COVID hit was the year that we were going to go to the, they had invited us to come to their Taste of Texas extravaganza, for lack of a better word. It was, it's a deal where they invite products that are quote, made in Texas, or mm-hmm. that are the Texas products that are not well-known, big, everybody knows about them products that are but are made in texas and they invite them to this big show either in san antonio or wherever they have it and they bring their products and you set up a table and you set up your all your information and what you have and what you do and and then all of the i guess category managers and and supervisors and 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 the upper office people from from heb go through there tasting everything and looking at everything and talking to people and all this sort of thing and out of that they choose one out of each category that they allow to come in, one product, and they feature that product for the entire following year. I mean, they give them end cap, they give them, they give them free advertising, they give them marketing tips, they do all kinds of things to try to really boost and push that product over that year. And the year that, that we were going to go to that is when COVID hit and they didn't have it. And as far as I know, they haven't had it since, but that would be a Place. But we've tried. We've called. We've called HEB. We've emailed HEB. We've talked to people we knew who knew somebody at HEB. It's like getting into Fort Knox. Somebody's got to get in. Yeah. HEB is selling water. Yeah, they're selling water. Maybe. Uh, and I personally think that Howard Butts would be very pleased to sell Hope Springs water. I think he would. Too. He's a good Christian man, and he would be happy to be doing that. I think he would too. Maybe somebody with HEB will hear this podcast. That would be nice. I would love to hear from them. Put in a good work for them. I would love to hear from them. I would love to come talk to them and share with them and tell them what kind of a difference they could make in people's lives. Well, maybe you already have on this podcast. Maybe so. Maybe so. I hope so. I hope so, too. It's been an interesting conversation. I'm not sure I grew up wanting to do interesting things, but but I'll tell you, this has been a party. I mean, this has been... It's been fun. I mean, it's been it's been hard. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's been some. That's almost struggle is where you find meaning, right? That's right. That is exactly right. That's the reason women have childbirth because that's where you find meaning, meaning. in that child. Otherwise, you'd kill them all, right? <laughs> <laughs> kick them to the wolves. But no, I, I think that that you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I've read that several places that our real meanings in life are are the important th- lessons that we learn in life come through struggle. And I can and I can tell you that I've learned a lot. 
Uh, remember Tom Hanks' line in um, the movie about the girls' baseball team, the lady women's baseball mm-hmm. team in the mm-hmm. World War II? He's, the hard is what makes it great. It's too hard. The hard is what makes it great. Hard is what makes it great. Because if you if you accomplish something and it didn't cost you anything, yeah. it's no big That's deal. Yeah. But if it cost you, if it was hard, if if it cost you something mentally or physically or then it's worthwhile. Yeah. Then it has meaning. Then you remember it. Then you remember it. Tell people where they can go, how they can best donate. You've said that you know, buying a, a case of water is not the best way to do that. But, no, I, I uh, didn't say that. Well, not, not the best. It's not the best, but if you because but, but it helps. And the other thing that it does when they buy a case of water is they they have our billboard, and when they pass our billboard out to their friends, mm-hmm. to the baseball team. What's this whole Springs? I've never seen yeah. that. Well, the you know the other thing people can do is they can go to the they can go to their wherever they buy groceries if it's H E B or if it's Central Market or if it's a local Five and Dime or you know Brookshire's and if Hope Springs Water isn't on the shelf, go to the manager say, dude, why don't you have this here? And if enough people do that, they'll do it. Now the other and another way people can help is if they want to donate. What we're really looking for are people that donate regularly. You know, a, a once a month. Ten dollars or twenty dollars mm-hmm. or whatever, so that we have a, a budget that we can work through. Sure. And but not to say if someone wants to give us a thousand dollars, we won't take it. But <laughs> but you know if 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 people would really like to get involved and be a part of what we're trying to do, mm-hmm. then donate regularly. Give, do a monthly deal where you you send us ten or twenty or fifty or hundred bucks or whatever you can afford to do, and and we will use it wisely. I promise you. And our books are open. All of our finances are on our website. You can go right to them and look at our our financial report for every year that we've been in existence. We go through um, oh, what's the there's a there's a governing organization that looks at all those kinds of things to see about look at your transparency and your mm-hmm. how you utilize money and what percentage of your money goes into administration and all this sort of thing. And they and and you get rated and we've got the highest rating that they have. So I mean we're. We, we're doing it right. We've been we've said we were going to do it right from the beginning, and we've done it right from the beginning. We're going to continue to do it right. One of our big goals of the water sales is that it covers all of our administrative costs so that every penny that people actually donate to us to go into programs goes into programs, and not one cent is spent on administration, on gotcha. people that have to do the nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. Pushing Just the to papers. keep it going. Mm-hmm. But if they, anybody has questions about Hope Springs Water, go to our website, hopespringswater.org. It's okay. easy, hopespringswater.org. Go into the website. So if they were going to contact somebody from that website, should you email through the website or should you call somebody? There are, there are, there are emails and there are phone numbers. Okay. And both of them, is, you know, there's an info at Hope Springs Water. There's Amanda at Hope Springs Water. There's Rob at Hope Springs Water. Phone number. The phone number is, is, in, is on the website. And you call it up and someone will return that phone call if okay. she doesn't answer it. Amanda is our is our main office person. And she's she's outstanding. She does a fantastic job. And she is very diligent to follow up with people that want to know more about Hope Springs Water. She believes in what we're doing with Hope Springs Water. And she works very hard to try to make it all happen. Rob is our executive director. And Rob is very devoted to making Hope Springs Water the best nonprofit organization around. And, you know, we're, we're all kind of amazed that, you know, we've got an international relief agency right here in Athens, Texas. God has blessed Hope Springs Water from the get-go, and he continues to bless us. And we're convinced that, it's, that, that our job is to just is to work 
like it's all up to us and have faith like it's all up to him. And that's what we're supposed to do. Who do you think would be good to be on the podcast? Doug Curran. The way that Hope Springs Water kind of got started was on his front porch. Because as, as God was presenting all this to me and all this kind of stuff was working through my head and through my heart and through you know the, the, the actions of everything. How, what do you do next? How do you mm-hmm. do this? How do you set up a nonprofit? How do you... How do you talk? Who do you talk to about bottling? You know, all that kind of stuff. I walk with Doug probably four or five days a week. We walk for about an hour, hour and 15 minutes early, early in the morning. We sit out on his front porch and drink a cup of coffee, and then we take off and walk. And we sit out on that porch, and while we're sitting there, we talk about stuff. And with Hope Springs Water, we we talked about all of it and trying to figure it all out. And was this something I really ought to do? Was God really calling me to do this, et cetera, et cetera? And And it happened. And then the same thing happened with him as we talked about health care. His vision was to just, there were so many people in our area, there are 40, like over 45,000 people just in our service area that have no access to health care, no insurance, mm-hmm. nobody they can go to in a health crisis other than an emergency room, which is horrible care. Not, not, nothing against the ER doctors, but that's right. not how you take care of people. Mm-hmm. Take care of emergencies that way not long-term health care. Right. And so he had a real burden for all that. And as we talked through all that, this idea for him to start this federally qualified health clinic came up. And, and he helped me with Hope Springs Water, and I'm helping him with the federally qualified health clinic. And so what we call his front porch, the birthing center. <laughs> the birth- <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's cool. And cool. because it's birthed to nonprofit organizations that are helping a lot of people around the world and, and locally. So it's a, it's a good thing. We have a good time together. We've been a lot of years together and yeah. brainstormed on a lot of things and shared lots of issues as we've gone along and, and shared our heartaches and shared our burdens and shared our dreams. Yeah. And it's been awesome. Yeah. See Ted Metatol. Thanks cool. for being on the podcast. Yeah. My pleasure.